So we are continuing our series again this week in the book of Isaiah, um, and uh, we have titled this sermon series, God's Story of Hope. And the chapter that we're going to look at today is, uh, it fits that title of God's Story of Hope as well as any section in the book. Uh, and here's a, here's a preview of the story from today's sermon. It's full of spoilers, but that's okay, you can... Uh, You'll just have to hear the sermon with the spoilers in mind. So this is a story of a tragedy that threatens the entire world. People everywhere are in pain and suffering, and the final destruction of humanity is looming on the horizon. But then an unlikely hero emerges. So unlikely that people scoff at him when he comes. His heroism is despised and rejected by the masses. Nonetheless, he perseveres through this lack of recognition and appreciation, even when God himself chooses to crush our hero and cause him to suffer. Our hero stays true to his calling. He is a true hero who willingly takes on a problem that is entirely not his fault. In fact, it is entirely the fault of the people that he is saving. And then the hero dies. He sacrifices himself for those who do not appreciate him. But this is the story of hope. So even when the hero dies and is buried in the ground, he sees the light of life and returns from the realm of the dead to see the joy of salvation and to save many from destruction. And at the end of the chapter, the hero is rewarded and considered among the great. It is God's story of hope. And the best thing about it is that this is not some fictional sci-fi novel. This is real. This is true. This story happened in human history and is happening now. And you can be a part of it. Because the threat that our hero saves people from is still threatening people today. It still threatens you until you too are saved by our hero. It's a great story. So let's get into the chapter and see how Isaiah tells it. He starts out in uh, chapter 53 is where we are. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah starts out with the fact that the message from God has not been widely accepted. He also uses a very interesting and poetic metaphor here. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What, what, what does that mean? What's the arm of the Lord? Well, the arm of the Lord is his power acting in the world. The arm of the Lord is the active agent doing his will, displaying his power. In the last chapter, uh, Isaiah uses the same metaphor, and he says, The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation 
of our God. But here in verse 1, Isaiah says that people have not believed the message or seen the revelation of the arm of the Lord. The message has come, the arm has been revealed, but the people have not responded as they should. The next verse gives some of the reasons why the people have not responded. It says, He grew up like a shoot before him, like a ten, or grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of the ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So first we see here that the message and the revelation of the arm of the Lord are centered on a person. It's a, it's a person that we're talking about here. And that powerful saving act of God in the world came in the form of a man. But he seemed to be just an ordinary man. Uh, there was nothing about him that put him in some special category. He wasn't a big six-foot-six muscle-bound guy with a cape that looked like a hero. He didn't come down from, uh, to earth from the sky to save us. There was nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. He appeared to be just an ordinary guy. He was average. And yet, he made bold claims about himself, and he ruffled a lot of feathers uh, with his teachings. And so we have verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. People did not simply ignore him, they actively disliked him. When God's hero came into the world, he was rejected by those he came to save. Of course, we're talking about Jesus, and in the Gospel of John, it describes it like this. It says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Verse 4 continues this theme of the rejection by people. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. God's man takes up our pain and suffering, bearing it on our behalf, and yet instead of recognizing that he was doing this, People thought that this guy must be receiving punishment from God. You know, some people think that uh, when they see someone suffering, that must be the result of some kind of karma, where bad behavior results in bad consequences. Or they believe that there's a God who judges people, and when you see someone suffering, it means that God is punishing them for something they've done wrong. Either way, they saw God's hero suffering and figured he must be getting what he deserved. So, God's hero arrives on the scene, the arm of the Lord, the man who will bring salvation is here, and people look at him and say, what, him? I don't think so. This guy's no hero. He's just some other guy suffering along with the rest of us. So, God sends us a hero, and we are not impressed. But in verse 5, Isaiah reveals what is really happening that the people 
are not seeing. Isaiah 53, verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It is not because God is punishing him for his own faults that he suffers so much. Jesus is pierced by the nails in his hands and feet and by the spear in his side, not for uh, his own transgressions, but for our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Now, what uh, this verse talks about transgressions and iniquities. Those are kind of words we don't use every day. What, what are transgressions and iniquities? Well, they are our faulty, sinful self-destructive actions that violate the law of God. They're the lies that we tell, the selfish actions that we do, racism, sexism, theft, violence. For many centuries, Christians uh, saw, um, uh, have considered uh, pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth to be the seven deadly sins. And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Those are what the Bible calls transgressions and iniquities. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are all guilty of at least some of these things that we just talked about. We all have chosen at times to reject God's way and to go our own way. And Isaiah is telling us here that Jesus suffered because of our sins. It was for the sins of those who failed to recognize him that he suffered and died. And in a crazy twist of fate, that suffering is the very thing that caused people to reject him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers and silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Uh, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus is afflicted. He suffers oppression and judgment, but it is totally unfair. He is not suffering for his own transgressions, but for ours. He had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. The innocent is suffering at the hands of the guilty for the guilty. And the unfairness of this was extreme. Uh, Jesus was 100% innocent and given 100% of the guilt. Um, if you were a football fan, you might remember something that happened a few years ago. Um, it was called Deflate Gate. It was a football scandal. It involves my favorite team, the Indianapolis Colts, in a game that they played against one of their major rivals, the New England Patriots. And uh, what happened was uh, 
After the Colts beat the, or after the Patriots beat the Colts yet again, as they usually did, sadly, I must admit, uh, some of the Colts staff complained that some of the footballs were not quite aired up all the way to full pressure. And they accused the Patriots of using underinflated footballs when the Colts had the ball, and then regular footballs when they had the ball. And the idea was that that would make it just a little bit harder to grip the ball and throw the ball, and it would give the Patriots an unfair advantage. A really, really small advantage, because you notice that uh, none of the Colts players during the game apparently even noticed that the footballs were slightly softer. It was, but nonetheless, if they, if they really did it, and they never really settled uh, one way or the other whether the Patriots did that on purpose or not, but if they did it, it was against the rules and provided an unfair advantage to the Patriots. But what is happening here to Jesus is not like that. Because that was some small little thing that just barely was unfair and just outside of the rules by a little bit. But what we're talking about here is a huge travesty. The one man who ever lived who was not guilty of sin is the one man on whom all the punishment was placed. As it said in verse 8, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Why did all that happen? Was it because evil people rejected and abused him, and so he suffered? Well, yes, but ultimately, no. That was not really the reason that this happened. The first line of Isaiah 53, verse 10, gives us the ultimate reason why Jesus suffered unjustly. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Jesus was ultimately not crushed by the Jewish authorities who condemned him or by the Roman soldiers who tortured and killed him. He was crushed by God who chose to make him suffer. Did you see that? It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Jesus' story is not that he was sent by God to show people a better way, but they wouldn't listen to him, and he fell into the hands of evil men and was tragically killed. I mean, in a sense, that is what happened, right? But Jesus knew that it would happen. In fact, it was the will of God for that to happen. God crushed him and made him to suffer even though he was totally innocent and did not deserve to suffer. Why? Why did that happen? Because as it says back up in verse 5, it says, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The suffering of Jesus is what made our healing possible. It's what makes it possible for us to have peace with God. 
But there's another reason too. God crushes Jesus, yes, but he was cut off from the land of the living and assigned a grave with the wicked. But that was not the end of the story. Let's look at the rest of verse 10 and, and verse 11. It says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Jesus would not stay dead. Uh, after he had suffered, he would see the light of life. Jesus came out of the grave on the third day and triumphed over death itself. So yes, it was God's plan for Jesus to suffer, but there was a meaning to it, a purpose to it. Uh, there were two great things that were part of that plan. First, through his suffering, Jesus was able to pay the price uh, for our sins and bring us healing and forgiveness, so saving us from the consequences that we deserved. But also, the suffering was temporary. Jesus would die, but he would come back from the dead, and he would be satisfied by seeing the salvation that he had brought to his people. The righteous servant of God has justified many uh, and will enjoy their salvation for all eternity. And then the chapter finishes with the great declaration of the victory of our hero. It says in verse 12, Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So why is Jesus great? Why is he rewarded? Because he poured out his life unto death. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for us sinners. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Yes, he was killed by evil men. And yes, it was the will of God the Father to kill him, but Jesus poured out his own life willingly to save us. He died willingly in our place so that we could have our sins washed away and we can be with him forever. But here's the thing. Verse 1 is still true too. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Most people still don't recognize their Savior. And if you don't recognize the Savior, He doesn't save you. If you refuse salvation, He does not force Himself on people. We must all make the willing choice to receive His salvation. We need to repent and believe and turn to him to be saved. And if you've not done that, I invite you to do it today. This day can be the day when you put your faith in Jesus to save you. All you need to do is ask and he will come to you and will save you. 
If you uh, do that now, this section of the Bible will be true for you. This is another part of the Bible. It says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, why might you not accept that? Well, maybe you think that God doesn't want to save you because of your sins and how bad you have been. But that's not true. God knows your heart. He knows all of the wrong things that you have done. He sees you completely. And he still loves you. God does not reject sinners who come to him and repent. Here's what the, uh, what the Bible says in another place. It says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that doesn't sound too good. All these people are excluded. But look at the next verse. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God has taken people who were guilty of all of those sins and he washed them clean and he made them holy and he justified them so that they can live with him forever in eternity. And God wants to do that for you too. Or another reason you might uh, not accept God's salvation is because you might be like Lois Lane. Yeah, Lois Lane from Superman. Stick with me here. Uh, there was a really interesting scene in the movie Superman Returns from a few years back now. But uh, if you saw that movie Superman Returns, you remember in the story of the, of the film, Superman had been gone for five years. And then uh, in, the, in those years, Lois had written this award-winning uh, article about how the world does not need Superman. All we need to do is just be the best we can be and we all can work together and we don't need some hero to come and save us. And then Superman comes back and he takes Lois with him and he flies her up above Metropolis and, uh, and the two of them are just hovering there above the city looking down on everything and they have this conversation. Superman says, listen, what do you hear? He says, nothing. He says, I hear everything. You wrote that the world doesn't need a savior, but every day I hear people crying out for one. You see, we might be blind to the needs around us. We might be blind to the fact that we need a savior, but God sees everything 
and he can see that we cannot save ourselves. We can't just be the best we can be and overcome our problems and heal ourselves. We need a Savior. And until you come to realize that and, and accept that and say, I can't save myself, nothing I can do is going to be enough, and you turn to Jesus and say, I need you to save me, then he will come and save you. Then he will come and save you. We need to recognize our needs and call out to our nonfiction hero to save us. We need Jesus. And Jesus has already won the victory. We just need to turn to him to be saved. Now, for many of us hearing this message, this is not a new story, right? For many of us, we are, uh, it's still good to be reminded of the foundational truths of the gospel, but, but uh, we can look back on, on that time when, uh, when we gave our lives to Jesus and we trusted him for salvation as, as having happened uh, many years in the past. But still, there is another application here, too, for you, you who have been Christians for a long time. Because Jesus is both our Savior and our example. Some people see Jesus as nothing more than an example for us. He taught such good things like the golden rule, turn the other cheek, compassion for the poor and needy, and forgiving one another. But that's all they see. They don't see Jesus as their Savior, but only as their teacher and their example. And this is a terrible mistake, because those who try to follow Jesus' example without acknowledging their need for a Savior are still guilty of their sins, and they will stand condemned at the judgment. But if we know Jesus as our Savior, we must also know him as our example. And one of the key components of this, his example is how he gave himself for the sake of his people and for others. Jesus took the suffering of others on himself. And he sympathized with their weaknesses and gave of himself to help them. Now, obviously, we can't die for other sins like he did, but we can follow his teachings and example of living for the sake of others, even when it means taking on hardship so that they can benefit. The clearest statement of this Christian principle is in Philippians chapter 2, where the Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That is our example of the great hero of Jesus, the one who came and sacrificed himself for us. And we too are called to follow his example by thinking not only for ourselves, but thinking of others and giving of ourselves, of our time and our treasure and ourselves to others for their benefit. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great story of hope and how Jesus came to rescue us. We thank you that the the tragedy that we faced of uh, eternal separation from you, paying for our own sins, was averted by Jesus when he came and won the victory for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, acknowledge that reality in each of our hearts and minds and that we would be committed to you and truly grateful for what you have done for us. I pray that you would give us that peace that you promised and that we would have healing from the consequence of our sins. Lord, help us to live up to the example that you have set of selfless love and care for others. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.